Hello, this is Miss Babin, and this is going to be podcast episode 15. It is for seventh grade Louisiana history, and it is about the antebellum period in terms of Louisiana. So antebellum Louisiana. Uh, The word antebellum literally means before the war. So the antebellum period is going to stretch from 1820 to 1860. And it is characterized by, uh, especially in the South, the development and the growth and power of the plantation system. It is also characterized by uh, a certain type of architecture that comes out of that period and uh, cultural beliefs where people lived with these ideas, particularly in the South, of honor and great dignity that go back almost to the idea of medieval knights. Uh, And it is uh, also linked, without a doubt, to the institution of slavery. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about what it was like in Louisiana during that time. And the three areas that we're going to focus on as we tile this together is, of course, going to be a change in population, the economy, and the society. And when you are talking about the antebellum South, these three, it's hard to draw lines between them because they all influence one another and they are all linked to that idea of the plantation life and plantation system. But let's start with what may be one of the easiest to understand, and that's going to be the population. In Louisiana, the population continues to grow, uh, especially after the War of 1812. Between 1812 and 1820, the population of Louisiana doubles. In eight years, the state's population doubles. That is huge growth. And part of it is because of the uh, success of the War of 1812 and how that the people of New Orleans were the saviors of their nation and the growth in nationalism in America as a result of the War of 1812 and particularly the Battle of New Orleans. But what starts happening is a lot of people are moving westward. They're now seriously moving into areas uh, explored by Lewis and Clark and into that Louisiana territory. But a lot of people are coming into Louisiana. So again, between 1812 and 1820, the population doubled. At 1830, uh, at that point, we start seeing immigration from foreign countries also increase into Louisiana. And particularly, it is people from Ireland and Germany. And the Irish are going to play a very important part because once they get here uh, and get established, they're going to start becoming extremely active politically. And they're going to actually challenge the uh, French and Spanish Creoles for control of Louisiana government. And that's going to create another layer of maybe a little bit of tension, but also a little bit of the multiculturalism in Louisiana. Uh, In terms of growth, by 1840, uh, New Orleans, just to let you see, this was the largest city in the South and the third largest city in the United States. So we really were uh, developing and growing quite dramatically. In terms of population, we do see that growth of cities and towns. And as I said, New Orleans was definitely the largest city in the, uh, United, in, uh, the state. Baton Rouge was second in growth. And then you have Shreveport, which was actually established in 1832, and it started to go, especially after the um, the raft was destroyed that blocked the Red River. But what happened is a lot of people were going along that that they go up the Red River to get into Texas, 
And actually, a lot of people just stopped and stayed in Louisiana instead. Most of the towns outside of New Orleans were pretty very were pretty small. Uh, they were just a few houses. They didn't have paved roads, so they were really, really very, very small. But what we have actually developing in Louisiana is something that's very interesting, and it's called the Crossroad Village. And the Crossroad Village villages would build up around um, small ports and around the bayous. And they were going, because they were close to the water and there was that water access, they were ideal locations for this because these were going to be uh, villages that were going to grow and they were going to grow up because they were places that people who lived out in the countryside on farms and even on plantations, they could come there to get needs met that were not met on a farm or the plantation. So this is going to be the place where the church was. This is going to be the place where the um, the doctor would live. You'd have the post office there. So these were going to be the villages that were going to start up in that area. You might have warehouses to store um, the cotton or the sugar cane before it was shipped. So these crossroad villages started up. And uh, for example, Simsport was a was a village like that, and it's still around today. So a lot of those little towns that we look at on a road map, and they're near a bayou or a village, some of them were actually crossroad villages back from the antebellum period. The thing about them is they were close enough to be reached by wagon or horseback uh, from the various farms and the plantations. So that's why you call it a crossroad village. It's going to be a place that people could get to in the region they could get things that they needed, and they, it was also available shipping. So that's where you were going to see the church. It's where if you were going to have a school, that's where it was going to be. Uh, the doctor, the uh, if you had a dry goods store, uh, a country store, that's where they would be located. Then, of course, we have the plantations. Well, you've got to understand something about the plantation system is it actually discouraged the growth of towns and villages in uh, Louisiana and other places throughout the South. Because in rural Louisiana, the goal of a plantation and a characteristic of a plantation was to be self-sufficient. Within the bounds of that plantation, they wanted to take care of all of their needs or as many of their needs as they possibly could. So there was not a desire uh, and it was not deemed desirable to have towns and villages shoot up because they wanted everything within the confines of that plantation. And we'll talk about why as we move through this and you'll see it very clearly. Uh, In terms of uh, antebellum South, and it's absolutely true of Louisiana, is there was a definite caste system. And we discussed this earlier in the year. So we know this was a rigid arrangement of social classes. And, you know, as we had talked about in our earlier podcast about how you had the people who lived in the towns and the people who were subsistence farmers, but this is going to grow and develop out of that. And so there are three basic levels. You're going to have the upper, uh, what we're going to call the upper class, the middle, and then the lower class. And within each of these, there's going to be divisions. So for example, at the top of the case, what we would call the upper caste was going to be your planters and your merchants. And the planters were absolutely the people who were the very top. 
And there was a big gap between the planters and the merchants and other and others. Uh, the planters were the people who owned the plantations. And they were the people who were going to um, become the wealthiest in the state of Louisiana. And they saw themselves as being the leaders of society. And so they kept themselves apart from other people for that reason. Within also this upper class were going to be the merchants. These people were often tied to the planters. They were going to be some the business partner, partners of planters who would help them in the negotiation and sale of their cash crops. So they were very well-to-do businessmen. And so these were often going to make up the top level of that group that you would have in the very upper classes. Also in the upper classes, you were going to see is where you would see the priest, your ministers, lawyers, doctors, people who might be of a professional group. They were going to be in the lower section of the upper class. So you've got to understand even within each of these groups, there was disparity, which the planters being definitely above everybody else, then the merchants, and then the people who were considered uh, of a professional level. The middle group was made up of farmers, and this was the majority of the population in Louisiana. Most people were farmers, and in the farming group, you had people who owned large farms and people who owned small farms. A large farm was a family-run farm, and it could produce as much of a product as a plantation, but it was going to be owned and run by the family. They were going to be working out in the field. They were going to do it themselves, whereas a plantation is going to be dependent upon slave labor. And so you have these large farms, and then you're going to have people who were smaller farmers. And they, again, as we talked about this, they were going to grow a small cash crop to sell, but they were primarily going to take care of their family. So the life of these farmers were very simple um, and hardworking, and everybody in the family had a job. Everybody in the family had a role to make that farm work. And so nobody was sitting around waiting because you it was a life of work to be successful. And they were the majority of the people in Louisiana, and they were the majority of people in the South. The next section of the middle classes were people who were who were craftsmen, skilled laborers, clerks who worked in office offices. Uh, they were called the plain people, P-L-A-I-N, plain people. And they were just regular working class people. So remember, um, again, most of the people in Louisiana were this middle class farmers who owned their family farms. That was the vast majority. And then the lower classes what the lower class was going to be made up of free people of color and then the slaves. Now, what I want you to understand is, is in Louisiana in particular, there was a large population of people who were what were called free people of colors, color. They were not slaves. And during the French period and during the colonial period, they were very accepted among society. There was a large population of them in New Orleans and then scattered throughout. But when the Americans come in and it, Louisiana becomes a part of the United States, they are shocked by that. That is not something that one would see in the rest of the United States. But again, this was Louisiana. 
but over time, the American system of laws, they will start to put laws in place that will be very restrictive of the free people of color. And at one point, they even try to force them to leave uh, the Louisiana. And so they, many of them will leave Louisiana because of that. But one thing I want you to understand is that your status in this case system was directly related to what a person did for his or her living. So if you were going to be of the upper classes, you were either going to be someone who had a very, uh, what was considered a professional job, such as a lawyer or a doctor. If you were going to move up the chain, you had to be a successful merchant. But at the very top, well, you were going to be a planter. And this, what you need to understand is that the planter class kept a distance from all others. And this is true of all slaveholding societies throughout all of history. Every slaveholding society uh, was going to have that controlling class. In this case, it's the planters. And they always see themselves as superior to everyone. So the planters definitely saw themselves as superior to the slaves that they held, but they saw themselves as superior to everybody else as well. And this, they were the wealthiest and they were the most powerful. They controlled the political system as well and society. And why is this? The reason why is because when there is a slaveholding society, those who are in control at the top, their main function or their main, one of their main purposes is to maintain control. And they have to maintain control because they do not want that slave population to rebel. Because what we're going to see in Louisiana and in the South as a whole is that the slave population is at times going to outnumber the non-slave population. And so these planters are always having in mind the fact that they have to be in control. And so they control all of society. And it's very interesting that the farmers, particularly those of North Louisiana, those middle-class farmers, they are not necessarily fans of the planters. They They see them as somewhat lazy, as somewhat greedy, as people not getting out there to work as hard as they, as the farmers would. And so they don't necessarily have a whole lot of um, respect for these planters. But what's going to happen is because of the cash crop, this plantation system is going to take hold and is going to drive the society. And remember, what is a plantation? It's an agricultural endeavor, very large, It grows a cash crop, so it is a for-profit business, and it requires a large, consistent labor force. And in this case, the large, consistent labor force is slavery. So what is the economy like in Louisiana? Well, it's agriculturally based. There is not a lot of industry in Louisiana. There is not a lot of industry in the South. As a matter of fact, uh, Louisiana will have one of the maybe two or three steel mills in all of the South. There's just not a lot of industry. It's based on agriculture. Uh, And this is the source of income for most people. Tobacco is not grown that much, but cotton is widely grown. And uh, the thing is, is that 
We know that cotton really took off in the United States after Eli Whitney created the cotton gin. But what a lot of people don't know is that before Whitney got his thing patented, there were drawings of it. And it was seen by some people who worked on a plantation in Louisiana. And they actually rebuilt it and changed it a little bit. And so the cotton gin was being used on a large scale in Louisiana before Eli Whitney ever had it being uh manufactured and used throughout the rest of the South. So cotton becomes a major crop in Louisiana first in terms of the United States, because we actually have the cotton gin here operating before anybody else. And the cotton gins, when they were built, that they were about the sizes of small buildings. And so the plantations would have their large scale cotton gins for their business, but the farmers, they would go to places like those crossroad villages where a gin would be, and they would have all their cotton ginned. And when you had that, uh, it made the, um, the, the farming and the shipping of cotton much easier and much faster and cheaper. Now, sugar is also another major crop. And we know that Deborah figured out how to granulate sugar, but Norbert Rilio, he who himself is a former slave, actually created what's called the vacuum pan process. And with the vacuum pan process, he makes the uh, production of sugar from cane a lot faster. And so sugar cane becomes a very, again, a very profitable crop. Excuse me, profitable crop in Louisiana. As a matter of fact, within 20 years, sugar production in Louisiana increases 500 times. Here's the thing sugar was more expensive to start as a crop, but once people got started with it, it was more profitable. So while more people will grow cotton in Louisiana, the very wealthiest people in Louisiana are going to be those sugarcane planters because sugar is in the end more profitable to grow. And this is where commerce and banking comes in in terms of the economy. Remember that um, Claiborne, when he came in, he insisted that banks be established and he fought to have it happen. Well, this is going to pay off for Louisiana because when... um, planters started, they had they hired someone who was a factor, F-A-C-T-O-R, and that person was their agent. And they would get the loans for the planters to get started. They would make the deals for the sale of their cash crop. And at first, they had to get factors out of England because that was where they could get the loans and the money from. And so they had these agents that would work with them, but they were across the ocean. But in New Orleans, with the beginning of the banks, what we're going to start to see is New Orleans is going to become the banking and commercial capital of the South, because in New Orleans is where the banks are going to start to be established and to grow. And so it's going to be through the banks in New Orleans that the planters are going to start to borrow their money and there's going to be investment in the land and the factors are going to work out of New Orleans for a lot of people and help them to make their deals. And unfortunately, and sad to say, uh, one of the other things that New Orleans was the leader of, and it was in the slave trade. In 1808, it became illegal to import slaves into the United States. That was a hard-fought battle for that law to be changed. 
but it did mean that slaves could not be sold. And in uh, the United States, New Orleans was the number one, had the number one market for the sale of slaves. And what would happen is when a planter uh, needed money, he did not want to sell land. So what he would do is he would sell a slave. And with the fact that slaves could not be imported into the United States, over time, the cost of slaves rose increasingly. As a matter of fact, they quintupled over um, the period from right before 1808 to 1860. So you start to see this happening in the United States. So just as life in the United States or in the South was rather rigid, life on the plantation was also very rigid. It was a very strict labor system. But I want to correct a misunderstanding that a lot of people have. The truth is, is that only 25% of the families in the South owned a slave, and only 25% of the families in Louisiana owned a slave. And uh, I was watching something in a person, there was this, in this research, they said uh, they had plantations of over a thousand slaves. The truth is there was only one plantation in all of the United States that was that large. It doesn't excuse what happens, but we do need to make sure that we have our details correct in these matters. The labor system was the, uh, there was a case on the plantation. Uh, the planter was at the top. And if the planter had an overseer, that was the only white employee on the plantation. And he was the person who managed the slaves in the field. And then depending upon what a slave did on that plantation, they were ranked in order with the highest rank being the person who worked in the plantation store and distributed the goods and with the lowest ranking being the people who worked in the field. It was a system that was designed to grow that cash crop, but it was also a system that led to the control of all of life in the South. And so in a way, everyone is caught in this system. And when the Civil War happens and the South then loses a Civil War, everything that their, the Southern society was built upon is going to be dismantled. And so it is. it goes back once again to show that when a society builds itself and has the oppression of one group by another, in the end, it never works out. In the end, it is never good.